In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey there, Duncan McHugh here. I've got a special bonus episode for you from another podcast that I work on and host called Hell of a Story. This one features the best of Canadian audio docs and storytelling, and there's one episode that I think you really like. It's a documentary about the leaders of a First Nation community who were put in prison for opposing a mining project in their traditional lands. My former CBC colleague Jody Porter made it while she was on leave with terminal cancer. Turned out to be the last piece she ever filed. It's quite the listen. Here's the episode, The Story of the KI-6. Last fall, Jody Porter got some awful news. She was 49 years old. She'd been fighting ovarian cancer for years. And it was back. And you know what she did? She rolled up her sleeves and she made a documentary. Jody was my colleague here at CBC Radio. She was a friend. Her work covering Indigenous issues in Northern Ontario for over two decades was groundbreaking. She was white, yet she was deeply trusted by the Indigenous community. She was fearless, a voice for the voiceless. In her last few months, she was in and out of hospital getting chemo. She was exhausted. But this story meant so much to her, she huddled in her closet and recorded it while she was dying. She was trying to get us to listen. What was it she wanted us to hear? I'm Duncan McHugh, and this is a hell of a story. My dad told us that if you believe in something, you don't play with it. You hold it. If fear comes, or if something challenges you, you don't run and hide because your belief is going to carry you through. The Kachinamakus Sibininawak First Nation sits on the banks of Big Trout Lake in northwestern Ontario. More than a decade ago, six community leaders took a stand against mining in their traditional lands. In a country like Canada, like would they really send leaders of a First Nation community to jail for standing up for who they are? They became known as the KI-6, and they never spoke publicly about how becoming political prisoners changed them. So many years had gone by, but they decided they wanted their stories recorded before one of them passed away. So, they turned to Jody Porter. Jody died this summer. One of the last things she did was bring together the experiences of the KI-6. Here's her story. In 2006, Kitchenmegu Sibininawag said no to a mining company. Cecilia Begg was a member of the remote First Nations elected council. It came as a blow. One day you woke up to that and said, mining is happening, it's going to be happening. And how are we, a small 
number of us up there. How can we stop this giant? For saying no to mining on their homelands in northern Ontario, the Gitschemegusib and Inuwag were sued for $10 billion, found in contempt of court, and six of their leaders were sent to jail. Chief Donnie Morris was among them. It sticks with you, eh? Some people will still think you're a criminal because you did end up in jail. Maybe their way of thinking hasn't really evolved to think that, no, we're a sovereign community. We are who we are. Bruce Sackakeep was the KI liaison with the mining company Platinex. They just walked in. They said that this was their land because it was off-reserved. Our community said, no, this is our land. We've been here for thousands and thousands of years. And Platnik's position was, no, I can go there because it's provincial lands. Daryl Sanawap was the youngest member of the council. What made me angry was that Ontario didn't try to consult with the community. We conveyed our position and our lawyer, the Ontario lawyer, he was very arrogant and didn't took anything we said seriously. And I remember looking across the aisle of where we were sitting and he would just laugh, snicker, and say, that's not going to happen. And that's those sort of things that crossed my mind as that jail door closed. Councillor Jack McKay spent much of his young life on his family's trap line. So we went into the courtroom and they were talking and after a while they took us to the back, like they were kind of telling us to take the deal. This is the best deal we can get for you guys. And I said to them, like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, this is how it started, like a little little group talking among themselves. Eh? The whole community should be involved. I told them, I'm not going to take this deal. I don't think it's a good deal for us. Did you understand that if you didn't take the deal that you'd have to go to jail? Yeah, that's the first thing that they did was the threatness. Sam McKay was serving his first term as councillor. And I told him, as long as the committee says no, and as long as I have breath in me, the answer is no. And the only way you're going to come in without the consent of KI is that you're going to have to lock me up forever or you're going to have to kill me. On March 17, 2008, the KI-6 were sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. The judge found the community had repeatedly and publicly defied a court order that demanded access for the mining company to KI's traditional lands. The time we spent in jail, Daryl, Cecilia, Bruce, Samuel, Jack, I think every one of us got affected. The system uh, did not see the way we were bought up, the rule of law. As uh, the judge said, that there can be no two sets of rule of law. But yet, when there's two identities going at each other, uh, one has to win. I left the community on a Saturday to come to the sentencing. My son, who was three years old at the time, I told him, I'll see you on Tuesday, I'll be home Tuesday. So, And then uh, he went to the airport with my mom, and he stood outside. Everybody got off the plane, and he's, like, looking around the airport terminal, looking at the plane door, saying, where's my dad? And that's where I got angry, too, because I really didn't think we were going to go to jail. 
talked to my wife, like I told her, like, I might have to go to jail because standing up for my land, <laughs> it's very important to me. The five men served their time at the provincial jail in Thunder Bay. Councillor Cecilia Begg, the only woman, was taken 600 kilometres away to Kenora and then returned to the Thunder Bay District jail cells for women. Her isolation from the other leaders began as soon as she left the courtroom. Of course, I felt alone, being separated, and I didn't like the fact that they were taken from another entrance and I was taken from the... No, it was so unfair, and I thought they just wanted to make a spectacle out of me, is what I thought. We acted as one, the six of us. We acted as one, and she was part of the six, and she never looked back. Same as us. It was sad that uh, five of us had to stay together and she was by herself. It was harder on her, but she made that decision. This is the right thing to do for the community. People recognize the fact that this woman is willing to give up her freedom. I guess in my mind, I was trying to set a good example too. Try not to show that there is you know, any divisions, just the unity and solidarity and so on. But, you know, people, we still have feelings. <laughs> and then, then I broke. You know, I didn't really want to. I was hoping I wouldn't break down, you know. I had been in jail before. It really wasn't a new experience for me, as it was for all the others. I knew what to expect. I knew what it was like behind bars. They quarantined us for 48 hours, I think, because they really didn't know what to do with us because we were seen as political prisoners. And then they finally just put us in general population. When we went in there, I was personally approached by the leaders of all different factions offering security because they recognized us as uh, celebrities. While we were in jail, I was designated to clean up the toilets and the uh, bathroom stalls in the basement where the common area was. And Chief Morris was designating the same area I was in. And I looked at him. I, uh, I looked at him. I uh, I looked at him while he's doing his uh, work. How much uh, the system tried to break him and tried to humiliate him. It's as if uh, they uh, disgraced me. They humbled me or washing the floors, uh, that whole facility. Like It, it really hurt me. Because uh, I don't think I deserve to be washing floors, cleaning toilets for 146 inmates plus the staff. Uh, it was just not appropriate. Yeah. He was my chief then. He's still my chief now. And I thought to myself that, you know, good leaders take their people where they want to be, huh? But great leaders take his people to where they need to be. And we needed to be there at that time, eh? And uh, I was prepared to do six months. Seriously, I was prepared to do six months. I was just going to stay there. And But um, from my perspective, what I see, 
As soon as we were sentenced, they realized they made the biggest mistake. And they tried to do anything to get us out as soon as possible. Throughout the spring of 2008, public pressure calling for the release of the KI-6 mounted. The harsh jail sentences were condemned by the Archbishop of the Anglican Church, Amnesty International, environmental organizations, trade unions, a group of high-profile Canadians including Judy Rebick and Stephen Lewis, and members of the general public. I've never taken the time to really go public to thank all the many supporters, people from everywhere. They would shake a hand and wish us well and encourage us. And there was so much work and so much spent on our cause. And I just like to say that I think of them. In her final hours in custody, Cecilia was taken in shackles for an X-ray. She still doesn't know why. They put chains on me. And they were hard to walk with, eh? Because they cut into you, even through your clothes. And uh, they cut me. So I went and had an x-ray. I never got any answers. Finally, after being locked up for more than two months, the KI-6 were allowed to leave the jail to attend the Court of Appeal in Toronto. I could almost cry (laughs) thinking about that moment. A lot of the inmates lined up said their goodbyes and good luck. And some of them said that uh, we're like an inspiration to them. And they're glad that we didn't give up on our stance because we were told to and that they also knew that we could have signed ourselves out at any time during our incarceration. We could have purged our contempt at any time. So as long as we didn't obstruct or get in the way of Platnik's activities. Were you ever tempted? Tempted? Uh, I thought about it, but I had to look at the bigger picture. And also, I don't think I wouldn't have been able to go back to the community, you know, with that in my conscience. Just days before the hearing, the mining company Platinex quietly filed a new lawsuit, this time against Ontario for failure to adequately consult KI. Then during the appeal, Platnex argued that the KI-6 had spent enough time in jail that no good would come of keeping them there. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. There any longer. Ontario was forced to drop its argument that the province's mining act needed to be enforced with fines that hurt. The KI-6 were released on the spot. Eventually, Platinex accepted a $5 million settlement from Ontario to abandon its mining claims near KI. I had mixed feelings about it. eh? Our battle wasn't over. And even today, it's still ongoing. eh? But we came out, we came out together. And that was the important thing. We went in together, we came out together. When they returned home, the KI-6 found their community strengthened in its resolve to protect its lands. 
but also hurt by the price they had paid to do so. When I came back, the community was different. Even within my own family, I know the signs. And during my absence from the house, they said that they just stayed there. My two sons were there, my grandkids, and, and of course, you know, they felt the hurt and the anger and the disruption in our lives. I don't know if there's, like, any correlation to this, but I think it was about the time we were incarcerated. I think that's when the drug epidemic hit. So if you go through the statistics, it was uh, it spiked at that moment and afterwards. The community was left leaderless, more or less. It's like they were left alone. No? Even Canada didn't step up. Not even. And all Ontario wanted to do was intimidate our people. Eh? There's something wrong with the system. Something wrong with the, both levels of government. No? Chief Donnie Morris continues to seek redress for the pain and suffering of his council and his community and for the money KI was forced to take from its social and infrastructure programs to pay for their court costs. Uh, there's still a lot of hurt. Everybody feels, I think, the Ontario government owes us an apology. And I think, uh, yeah, if the apology is part of a financial compensation to uh, not just for us, but also for the community too. And a structure uh, would have to be built to show uh, that uh, this is our way of saying sorry. Still, more than a decade later, the KI-6 remains steadfast in their right to say no to development on their lands. It's a cause for us. It's not a lost cause. We, we, we can make something out of it. I just haven't developed what I'm planning to do with the Ontario government, but we will proceed in a legal system internationally now. I learned from my mistakes. Now I know coming back what to do now. Yeah. The community has taken steps to encode their oral traditions in law, asserting their right to control their homelands and protect all the waters flowing in and out of the Big Trout Lake watershed. What I gained from it is uh, I need to educate myself, know more of my rights not only as an individual, but as, uh, as an indigenous person in our collective rights under the treaty, from the doctrine of discovery, papal bulls and all that, and how that comes into play in today's world. So I know exactly who I am and what my rights are, and that's what I stand for. For me, it was the lesson the community has to be involved if we want to do a major thing like this, not just one group. To me, it's, it's about the land. Like... What's going to happen to the people that we still rely on the land? That connection to the land and to their elders fueled each of the KI-6 in their own way. Well, my grandparents taught me just respect the land, the animals, the water, and all that, and you fell a being. Eh? That, that is our law. That was the law that was passed down on to me. My grandmother came to jail, although she didn't like us being in jail. You sensed that she was proud because she knew the situation that I was in. And she understood. When we walked into the room in jail and all the elders were there, she hugged me and told me to stay strong. My grandfather, he wasn't a man of many words, but he was one of the 
elders that were always at the meetings. I don't think you ever missed a meeting. <laughs> Just to have those, uh, like, being there with us in all the meetings, all the discussions, they're always there. They may not say much, but they're there. And this is who gave us the mandate. They're our bosses, so they're watching over us, and I better do what they asked me to do. They were there. They supported us through their ways of uh, being friendly, communicating with us, and just letting us know that, you know, there's people like us here that support you. This is difficult for me to put into words. I don't like to celebrate it. I don't, I don't know. If, although we got what we wanted, and it was tough, the credit isn't us, okay? We did what the community wanted us to do. We took the direction from our elders. We took the direction from every member, and we prayed. We prayed for God's guidance to get us through. So with all of that, it wasn't just us. And if it wasn't for the community support standing there with us, I don't think we would have succeeded in having the company leave the area because there was a strength of every individual who told us to say no and stand up. You said an example. You know, when we meet uh, any kind of hardship, but that we should stay strong and united. Prayer is powerful, and people are powerful. My dad, he told us that if you believe in something, you don't play with it. You hold it, no matter what the consequences is. Meaning, what you believe in will carry you through. That's something I'm, I'm happy to say that I follow through with what I believe in. Put my life on hold. Put my freedom on hold. But we came through. That documentary from the late Jody Porter. You know, so often uh, we journalists go to blockades and protests, uh, but we move on to the next news story and and we don't hear about what happens after, about the long-term toll these kinds of land disputes can take. So far, uh, the province of Ontario hasn't responded to the community's calls for redress, which is partly why the KI6 wanted their experiences on the record and spoke with Jody. Now, as I was listening, I hear such a strength in Jody's voice, but because of the cancer, she needed help making that talk. She said telling stories is a kind of magic. She got that help from a longtime friend. Stories have the potential for healing. A community advocate who works with Treaty 9 First Nations, David Pirla. Ten years after they were released from jail, the leadership had come to me and they requested Jody because of their relationship, because they trusted her with their stories. You know, at that point, she was in remission. She wasn't that sick. But, you know, by the time she was taking what were the recorded interviews and turning them into a doc, she was in the terminal stage of cancer. And so, in a sense, that this is uh, her last act of journalism. Is it a farewell poem to life? Uh, I don't know. I think the title of the piece is her message to us. 
what you believe in will carry you through, the teaching that Bruce Sackkeep got from his father. So I think about what she believed in caused her to complete the project in a sense. There was no reason. You know, she didn't have to make this doc, but she decided to make this doc. And when KI, when the leadership of Kitchen with Kusum and Inouye asked Jody to record their stories, she showed up. She showed up when she knew she was dying. Which is, I mean, just incredible. She's in her closet recording this. And, and this was what I was asking is, is, you know, what was it that she was trying to get us to hear? Yeah. Um, the reaction when everyone found out that Jody Porter had passed was, was particularly strong amongst the Indigenous community in Northern Ontario. Why did people trust her so much? I mean, I think it goes to listening. It's like not many people in this cold city are often on the side of Indigenous people. So, you know, people could sense she had an open heart. She wasn't a story taker. She was a story maker. And there was a foundation of trust and also just time spent, stories told. Nobody was telling those stories here. In conversations, uh, as we tried to get the, the final documentary, I mean, it was kind of a bootleg nature. There was a file here and a file there. I discovered that she recorded a message to the, the KI leaders to accompany the documentary. Um, do you mind if we listen to that together? Please. Okay. I often think of KI as the reason that I'm here and that I'm a journalist. I still have a picture of my daughter and I standing on the shore of Big Trout Lake that I've looked at often as I worked with your words. Ever since that first visit, I've had dreams about KI um, as a healing place for me. Um, I've had many good visits there. I'm so fortunate for the time I've spent in your community. And then when I got to revisit the recordings of your stories and your wisdom about how you survived such a dark time. It really kept me going. So I think I know now why I so often dreamed of your community as a place of healing. And I'm really, really thankful for the opportunity to know some of that story and to be able to give something back. So I've got tears rolling down my face uh, listening to that. Um, and Jody would probably find it difficult that we're playing it because she didn't want the story to be about her. No, never. <laughs> but But what goes through your head when you hear it? I think about, uh, you know, listening as an act of love. Jody knew how to listen. And in listening, she showed us how to listen. David, thank you for sharing the, the story of how this documentary got made and, and miigwech. Thank you. That's it for this 
very first edition of Hell of a Story. I'll be back next week. I'll be back every week with, well, just great stories. The best in Canadian and international audio documentary and storytelling. The show is produced by Michelle Parisi and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Document. Special thanks to Jody's family, Wes Luloff and Madeline Porter. And hat tips to Logan Turner and Don Hill. I'm Duncan McHugh. Jimmy Gwitch. Thanks for listening. That was an episode from Hell of a Story. You can listen to more episodes right now by searching for Hell of a Story on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Hope you can check it out. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.